Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre as our tennis schedule continues into February, Black History Month. Plenty of hard court, a couple clay court tournaments happening and the Sunshine Double coming up right around the corner. But Mike, uh, to touch on Black History Month, so many incredible champions of the sport uh, from the past and present and surely future. It feels like a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're already halfway through February, almost here. But uh, let's touch base on on some of the, the greatest black tennis players of all time. And it goes without saying, my mind immediately goes to Arthur Ashe on the men's side, even though he was before my time. But his legacy is is one that everybody can appreciate and is well aware of the influence he had, uh, you know, breaking down barriers in a primarily white uh, tennis uh, tour back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s. And on the female side, it's a pretty obvious, a foregone conclusion. But both Venus and Serena Williams, who were of our generation and, uh, you know, literally the same age as me. I'm uh, 42, so I'm the same age, I think, as as Venus, or right in between the two sisters, actually. And how many young black tennis players, how many young tennis players in general, that mm-hmm. the two of them particularly, um, you know, inspired to pick up a tennis racket, grow the game. What a boom, for sure, uh, in that period of time in the United States and worldwide. So, um, let's recognize that. Let's talk about that. And uh, I'll go in a minute. But anyone in particular for you growing up that caught your eye or even right now among the black community as a tennis player that that stood out for you um, while watching the sport? Yeah, I mean, the player that really stood out to me when I started watching a lot of tennis, which was, uh, I mean, I did watch it in the 90s, but when I became a bit more serious about it was kind of late 90s into early 2000s. And for me, uh, the key player uh, who really sort of took off 2004, 2005, 2006 was James Blake, uh, who had, of course, an incredible career, reached uh, career high number four, handful of quarterfinals at slams. He never had that sort of pinnacle breakthrough in terms of a slam run say per se to a final uh but he had a fabulous career uh and for me one of the most memorable matches ever was him battling against Andre Agassi like a five set thriller at the US Open which i think is one of the greatest matches ever played at Flushing Meadows those two sort of a, a, such a great american clash when when Agassi was at the tail end of his career but Blake for me was a very special talent had that one-handed backhand and it was very cool actually the both of us we got to see him play as a legend on the champions tour here in toronto about four or five years ago uh, i never got to see him uh, as a player during his playing career and now he's uh, such a great commentator in the sport as well so blake was sort of that standout player for me and i mean there's so many to choose from now of course we have our own in canadian felix ogiali seem who will talk about uh, francis tiafo has had such a remarkable rise i think even just at the U.S. Open uh, this past summer. I think that's where he really, really stood out with a huge win over Rafa, making the semifinals and on track for an incredible career. Uh, So there are a couple names right now who are impressing. James Blake was sort of that first guy who really stood out to me from my time watching. That match between James Blake and Andre Agassi, to me, I I remember feeling so conflicted because... I had grown up an Agassi fan and you knew that the end was coming and you were hoping he would have one last great hurrah and one last title there. But then James Blake was such a likable guy as well and had such mm-hmm. a fun game to watch and, and, and is such a nice guy. And uh, the way that match went down, I mean, I, I don't remember the scoreline, but I remember him having sort of the upper hand and Agassi, I believe was kind of creeping back into that match. And it was, 
it was difficult to kind of watch, but what a great guy and, and got to speak with him when he was here in Toronto. I believe that was three years ago for one of those champions matches. And uh, I mean, he was pretty candid with me about how his game was not what it used to be. And, <laughs> and the same with Ronnie, yeah. who was there with him as well. And, and I remember him saying how, like, I asked him who amongst your, your generation of retired players now who still partake in these champions events takes these the most seriously. And he didn't even hesitate. He's like, Oh my God, Johnny McEnroe, without a doubt, mm-hmm. you know, what you see on court, he said, is, is is absolutely the real deal. And I just really appreciated his his honesty and, and candor. And uh, it's always cool. I've, I've said this before on the podcast. I get more amped up talking to former tennis players than I do current tennis players because the kid in me um, still very much gets excited. And uh, in terms of black female tennis players, uh, that really sparked my my interest and attention back in the day when I was growing up, which was about a decade before you, let's say, Xena uh, Garrison was just so incredible. And for me, it was that run to the finals of Wimbledon in 1990 against Martina Navratilova. Ultimately, she didn't win that match. But to get to the finals, she beat Monica Seles in the quarters and Steffi Graf in the semifinals. And I just think, like, how many players have even done that at the Mm -hmm. slams? And that was during the time, like, when when both of those two were, like, peaking, I want to say. I think for Seles, it was, like, 90 to 92 93 she was just almost unstoppable and graf in 1990 particularly at wimbledon was uh, was already a well-established um you know success there so for garrison to do that unbelievable and looking back through some of the stats on her career i was really amazed by the consistency which was that she was a top 25 singles player on the wta between 1982 and 1995 wow which is very that's very hard to do what a stretch of time um so yeah just thinking back uh, again 1988 olympic games for Zena garrison she uh, won bronze and singles gold in the doubles i believe that was with pam shriver who we've spoken to several times on the podcast mm-hmm. and uh so for me her and uh, malavia washington who i mentioned at length in an article of mine last week on the national bank open website um you know two of the the the, the players from the black community that really had an influence on me growing up uh, excited me, and and I just remember those two runs uh, for her in 1990 at Wimbledon, uh, for Washington also at Wimbledon, but a few years later in 1996 that that really captured my attention. And and you can't help but root for they were both underdogs in those uh, those situations. Um, love rooting for a good underdog, and uh, and again, like I said earlier with Serena and Venus, like how many young kids from the black community would have seen people and related to them and said, hey, if they can do that, why can't I do that? putting a tennis racket in in perhaps their hands and, and getting them to pick up a racket for the first time. Oh, 100%. Another name I will say, I, I mean, because the Williams sisters sort of, sort of go without saying, if you're talking about the women's side, uh, Shonda Rubin really had a terrific career, uh, particularly uh, in the 90s. Her, her semifinal run in Australia came in 1996, great French Open player, and she was someone who could always uh, go up against the top players and give them a run. She's recorded wins over Serena, wins over Martina Hingis. She has a Grand Slam and doubles. That's someone I'd love to get on the podcast. I'm sure we can get her at some point she's also Haven't a you spoken with her now. before or am i mistaken i thought you spoke oh maybe you have before. i have not spoken to Sean. Oh, okay no it wasn't me either, <laughs> was me either. Yeah. um and and you know we should before moving on to um you know the the main events on the atp and wta this year just to to carry forward a little bit here on this very important topic of black history month and the impact and influence of these players how lucky we are to have felix oje aliasim to be inspiring young black kids here in Canada with his accomplishments, both on and off the court, the on court, 
the on-court results everybody is now aware of. He's a top 10 presence. And off the court too, though, just the work he does every summer uh, with his foundation, or sorry, I shouldn't say summer, but in the off-season of tennis, the brief mm-hmm. off-season, going to Togo, uh, where his father was from, and working with the kids there, focusing on education and athletics as well. Um, and, you know, he's only 22 years old, but just what a role model already. And he gets it. He just gets the big picture that you're a professional athlete, and I wish more of them kind of got it, uh, that you've got this, I think, you know, a responsibility to kids. And um, I, I coach a high school tennis team here in Toronto. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before on the podcast, um, but at uh, St. Basil the Great, which is in North York. And we've got a very large black community there. Big basketball program at the school, big soccer program at the school. Tennis, not so much, which is mm-hmm. probably because I'm the coach. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of very talented uh, young kids, uh, Nico and Imojula Garnett. Uh, Nico's the younger brother. He's in grade nine this year. Uh, the tennis season only starts in the spring, so very excited to see what he can do. His older brother, Imojula, won uh, Toronto District Championships when he was in grade nine, won the gold wow. medal at the junior level. And then had his grade 11 and grade 10 years wiped out because of the pandemic. But he's going to be one of the front runners this year in grade 12. Not just here in Toronto, but hopefully at the OFSA Provincial Championship too. And uh, just a couple of young kids from within the black community here in Toronto who are huge tennis players, huge tennis fans. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to give them both a, a shout out this week. No, oh, fantastic. Uh, Well-deserved. Um, great to touch on that topic. We'll move on to the tennis. And if we start on the women's side, uh, a couple big Middle Eastern tournaments and beginning in Abu Dhabi, uh, we had our Canadians there. Well, we had, you know, actually, yeah, three of them and Bianca Andrescu, who we just recently spoke to on the previous podcast, who had a nice run to the semifinals in Thailand. In Thailand, she had a bit of a shoulder issue, which caused her to pull the plug in that one match against Lucia Sarenko. Here, first round, loses in straight sets to Yulia Putin-Seva. I did think it was nice they are actually friends and shared on Instagram prior to the match, uh, sort of face up against one another. Uh, winner is buying dinner, and uh, Yulia Putin-Seva coming through 7-5-6-2. Bit of a patchy performance from Bianca Andrescu. I'm not sure I want to read too much into it given she had just been in the semifinals before kind of a lot of tennis and a quick turnaround good that she was able to go that obviously the shoulder wasn't concerning that they needed to take any time off or that her and her new team were concerned about uh, pushing too hard in the early going of the season and um, I mean I wonder how Bianca feels about I know we just spoke to her we didn't put this question to her so blatantly we kind of framed it as what an opportunity you have at the start of the year given that you weren't playing for the first three months of 2022 Lots of an opportunity to accumulate points, boost the ranking. But I personally kind of feel pressure for her because there's almost this expectation that your ranking can only go up right now with what you're doing. How much pressure is she placing on herself maybe to accelerate that process? I know I see her name in the draw and I get excited and I'm like, yes, this is it. We're going to be, you know, moving up here to the top uh, 30, getting seated hopefully for the French Open. And Mm -hmm. if I feel that pressure, just kind of, watching from the sidelines I, I wonder if that's something that that she feels too given the circumstances yeah it's it's certainly possible and i i know she she's talked about some big goals for this year as well wanting to get back inside the top 10 wanting to win big titles she even mentioned the goal of believing she can win another slam this year it wasn't sort of a goal of like i think i can win another slam in the future she wants one now and of course we all want 
as as tennis fans, I think everybody wants wants things so immediate as well. And that's not really the process with tennis. I mean, there are so many fantastic players who are eyeing those same big time goals, and it's not going to always be linear your progress. So. In in a way, I think Thailand for me uh, was a strong step forward because it's a tournament she could have been in the final in the finals of and possibly won. And then Abu Dhabi, um, a tough match against a very good opponent and Yuli Putinseva, who has been a top thirty player before and has had some very good runs at, at big events in the past. Yeah, I don't think we've got like the Canadian blinders on when we look at Bianca. I don't think we're looking no, I don't that think so. red and white lens. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's got the game that that troubles people, and I think it's just a matter of getting the consistency on court, and getting used to whatever the new message is from her new coach, uh, um, Christophe Lambert, mm-hmm. um, putting in the time and and rediscovering that confidence as well. To you know that what do you think separates the top ten on the WTA? Right? Look at players like uh, Annette Contivate, who was so strong in i want to say what 2021 and then took a little bit of a step back she's outside of the top 50 now i believe and it's it's not like all of a sudden overnight your game goes away it's just that confidence plays such a big part and uh and i know and we've seen it bianca when she's on a roll boy that confidence she's got so much of it and uh, and i think she's got all the tools and the game to once again be up there in contention uh and i i don't think i mean I, i believe you feel the same way i don't think that i'm fooling myself when i say that no, I, I'm completely with you. And you sort of touched on how difficult this sport, especially as it feels like on the women's side, um, with the amount of parity that we do have to stay on top, to stay even within the top 10, top 15, given the parity of harder, results. It's getting incredibly challenging. You look at, you know, you mentioned Contivate, Paula Bedosa. She got as high as number two. I think she's back to 20 now. You know, say you suffer an injury, she missed the Australian Open. You, you get that one big title like she had at, Indian Wells and so many points sort of rely on that the following season as you turn over. I mean, we had Pavla Chenkova, I think, crop, crack the top 10 a couple of years ago, and she's way outside the rankings right now. So it's really, really difficult. Uh, if you look at the bulk of the top 10 right now, it's sort of, it's not always the players who are winning a bunch of titles. I mean, Maria Sakkari is sort of a good example of that. Players who are putting themselves in position, making quarterfinals, semifinals very, very frequently. It's a very unforgiving sport when you're coming back from injury. Nobody yes. waits around. The tour no. doesn't stop. No one's waiting for them to come back. No one's like, oh, I really can't wait for Paula Badosa to come back on tour and, and kick our butts, <laughs> you know, like she did a couple of years ago. Like, no, yeah. it's like nobody ever, right? Like, it's so tough. And then I think of the first couple of episodes of Breakpoint on Netflix and the Badosa episode in particular, where she was talking to her team in that one scene about just the pressure and the mental health. And the team was like, well, then maybe we shut it down for a bit. You know what I mean? And there's that pressure and and it's only compounded, I would imagine, when you're coming back from an injury. You want to get back to what you know your game can be like, but everyone else has kept on moving and improving in that time. And especially, you know, look at Leila Annie Fernandez from a Canadian perspective last year when she went down almost on the cusp of her best ever result at the French Open, you know, almost making the semis there, then suffering that injury out for three months so difficult to come back in the summer, late summer, and then expect mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to be back on par with everybody else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. It's not you're you're not suddenly just returning from the injury and like, well, since I'm I'm back, I'm ready to start beating everybody again. I mean, the the prime example of that for me right now on the men's side is Dominic Team. Uh, you look at where he was in his career in 2020. Um, one of the three to five best players in the world. He won that U.S. Open. He'd been to French Open finals. He'd won 
Masters 1000s as well. And now it's, I mean, it's a very long path to get back. We, we got to remember, like, Rafael Nadal is the exception, not the rule in terms right, of returning right. from injury, right? It, it doesn't normally work that way. And I think, like, you know, everyday kind of athletes, tennis players, whatever, like, like you and me, non-professionals, we get it too. Like, I don't know about yourself, but for me, tennis, I don't play tennis in the winter. You know, I'm a recreational player and not a very good one, but functional. I played since I was a kid. Yeah. And every spring when I go back out, it's like, oh my God, it feels like I've never played this damn sport before. <laughs> and I've been yeah. playing since I was six or seven years old, you know, and, and mm -hmm. even in hockey, which I'm, you know, a little bit better in hockey, I play two, three times a week. But if I get an injury or something and I'm out for a couple months, I come back and it is frustrating. Oh, and it, I, I mean, not to bring age into the equation, but it, it oh, does. Oh, but you get... are, but you are. I know what you're doing here. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to mention it, it is, it is a little more and more difficult each time as you get older to make that comeback. I think for kids, they bounce back so, so quickly. You know, once you pass maybe that age of 30, 35, so on, it, it just gets more and more challenging. And tennis players, even younger tennis players, like for sure, as you get older, the harder it gets, which is why, like, how did Federer go so long before finally something happened to him? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but um, in Nadal, as, I mean, look at how many injuries Nadal has suffered throughout his career. And even some of the young ones, like Bianca is what, 21, 20, 22 now, 23? 22. How many injuries has she sustained in her young career? And even before she was a professional dealing with things at the junior level. So Tennis is a very, uh, as, as we all know and our listeners know, tennis is a very grueling sport on the body. Um, and, and even if you're younger sometimes, how many careers have been cut short? I think automatically my mind just kind of goes to Anna Kournikova, who showed so much promise at mm -hmm. 16, 17. And, and her career was, was over by what? I want to say like mid-20s because of, I think in her case, it was back or shoulder. Um, so... Yeah, definitely I can feel and relate to being a 40-year-old who has aches and pains and, and things go out and get wonky on me more often than not, but it can hit players, professional players, even much earlier. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Just getting back to, to Abu Dhabi and Belinda Bencic, I, I mean, we've been grateful to have her on the podcast multiple times. Many times, yeah. Yeah, the tennis she's playing, I, I think you can make the argument it's some of the best she's played in her career. She beats uh, Ludmilla Samsonova, one six seven six six four to take home this title. She saved three championship points actually in that second set, which was ten eight in the tiebreaker. That second set alone was eighty five minutes. I have to say it was gripping, riveting tennis. At one point during the championship point for Samsonova, she actually had a net core which just scooted over. Benchich got there in time, found a way to win the point. Uh, really dug deep for this one. She was also up five two in the second set. Samsonova rallied back, but incredible match. Benchich is now twelve and two in 2023 two titles that's two titles in three tournaments round of 16 at the australian open uh, i mean she is playing incredible tennis her only two losses too are to the two best players in the world in my mind Iga Sviantek and arena sabalenka yeah and her and sabalenka are the only two players on the women's tour that both have two titles this year she's got one more win now i think than sabalenka as well and uh Look, she's a player who's been on our mind for such a long time. Back in 2015, of course, we've mentioned it several times on this podcast because she did it here in Toronto, that incredible run to the title at the Rogers Cup, now National Bank Open. Uh, we've seen her under big pressure at the Olympics perform and get a gold medal in singles, a silver medal, I believe, also in, in doubles. We haven't quite seen it translate at the slams yet. I think we've all been waiting for that. But when someone like Serena Williams says, you know, back in the day in Toronto in that 2015 event, look out for this player. She's the next big deal. You know that the talent is there. And uh, 
you know, the smile she hoisted that trophy in, in, in this tournament says it all. She's feeling great and uh, and one of the toughest players to face right now on, on tour for sure. Even even when Benchich has been outside of the top 15, top 20, I've considered her a top 10 type player for, for years now. Yeah, definitely from a talent perspective, she's always been up there. The big new addition, I think, for her is Dmitry Tursunov that she added as a coach in the fall and has been on fire since. She's won 16 of her last 18 matches. So maybe that breakthrough at a slam is not far away. I, I mean, she could have gone realistically deeper in Australia if she doesn't run into Arena Sabalenka in the round of 16. Who knows? Uh, but she's firmly inside the top 10 right now, uh, ranked number nine. Her career high is number four. Uh, Samsonova, she's moving up to a career high 15. I want to mention oh. as well just a couple talents from this tournament. Uh, Zhang Xinwen, who I th- we've touched on before, she particularly impressed me back at the National Bank Open, that for me was um, sort of a breakout moment for her where she had to run there, I believe, to the quarterfinals, but lost, uh, beat Bianca Andrescu on, on center court in a night match, and she played so, so well. Such a phenomenal athlete. Um, still just 20 years old, and if you watch her athleticism from the baseline, powerful serve, the way she moves, I think she has all the makings of someone who, who could win a slam, to be honest. Yeah, I agree as well. I think we're both pretty high on her and her potential, and uh... Look, I don't have the financial resources to bet on tennis, but uh, if I were into betting, she's definitely a player that I'd be putting down like a not a huge, but something at, at every slam moving forward because she's the kind of player that I wouldn't be surprised if she had a breakout at a, at a major event even, you know, similar to uh, uh, a Layla Annie who made the finals or a Raducanu who won USO, but something along those lines. And, yeah. and I see a real consistent talent there and, and someone we're going to be talking about, I think, for uh, for a long while here. Yeah, and she's inside the top 25. Beatrice Hadamaya also had a great tournament. Um, she is up to a 12th in the world now, which is going to be a new career high, making the semifinals as well. And, uh, of course, she made the finals of the National Bank Open this past summer. If we look ahead to action in Doha this week, I've never seen a qualifying draw like this, and I have to apologize for those who follow the Matchpoint Canada account. I didn't have the draw up properly in front of me, and Layla and Rebecca Marino had both won a pair of qualifying matches. Normally, that is enough to get you into a WTA 500, two qualifying wins. This is such a strong and deep field, uh, so many players there, that you need three qualifying wins just to get into the main draw, which feels almost unheard of for Leila Andy Fernandez right now, who's inside the top 40, needs to win three matches in qualifying to get into the main draw of a WTA 500. I'm scrolling through the qualifying now, and it's like, scroll, keep scrolling, keep... There's so many players in this draw, and this is just the <laughs> the qual. I mean, this would make a fantastic main draw WTA uh, draw anywhere else. If yeah, like, or many, many cities in the world, many places in the world. And now she's in the third round of qualifying as we're recording this on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, and she's got to face Karolina Pliskova in the final round of qualifying. I'd pay money to watch a final between these two players. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, I, I think Jose Morgado tweeted, if you look at the qualifying draw, it's like a very strong WTA 250, which is exactly right. And uh, for Layla, already like two good wins, beats Jasmine Polini in straight sets and a comeback win over Diana Yastremska. Rebecca Marino is also playing well. I'll mention in Abu Dhabi, she qualified for that event before losing to Zheng Xinwen uh, in the first round. And then in Doha, two good wins over Sasnovich and Zavatska, and she'll have to get to Bozkova just to get into the main draw. So it's really, really deep, very, very tough. 
And if we just look over to the main draw, which Bianca is in, Iga Swiatek, it's her first tournament uh, since the Australian Open. Yeah, I got to be honest with you. I haven't seen the uh, singles draw yet, so I'm going to look right now. But uh, where do we have? Boy, this draw is stacked, eh? Look at some of these matches. You might have you might have Spiontek against Collins for her first match. That's definitely a possibility. We could have Azarenka Bencic as a second round match. Goff and Kvitova as a potential. So this is a very very deep field. It, it almost looks more like a WTA 1000. Feels like everybody's playing this week. We should take our show on the road and go to one of these one of these years. <laughs> this is fantastic. Did you say Bianca was there? I'm scrolling. I don't see Bianca there. Is that just me or? Uh... Um. Let me find her maybe i'm wrong but uh i believe she is sorry i don't see her here you're right maybe she's not i'll let you google that as i segue us over to the men's side of things the atp side of things and uh just i guess want to talk a little bit about the dallas open and uh Mm -hmm. i I, i've never been to to texas um but uh, seeing these players putting on the cowboy hats is uh, is kind of cool they all have this Sort of semi-embarrassed, semi-like, oh, this is really cool grin on their face. As you can tell, some of these guys have never put on a cowboy hat before. Uh, Denis Shapovalov was there, but uh, did, didn't quite make it as far as we maybe thought he would, Ben, uh, going out against, uh, I think you've watched more of him play than I have, but a, a real fast-rising talent on the ATP Tour. Yeah, Wu Yibing is kind of caught the Dallas crowd by storm in this event. Uh, I think for people who sort of follow the challenger circuit, they knew this uh, 23-year-old was coming quickly because he sort of soared up the rankings over the past year plus. But um, he beats Denis Shapovalov 7-6-6-4, which frustrating loss from Shapovalov's side. Too many errors in this match. Eight double faults, which sort of stand out, particularly happening in bad moments. He played a poor tiebreak in that first set, which was 7-1. The loss looks a lot worse when you see that uh, Wu Yibing getting all the way to the finals, getting a huge win uh, over Taylor Fritz, the number one seed in the semis, 6-7-7-5-6-4. So just another sort of quick-rising talent to keep your eye on on the ATP. There are a lot right now, uh, but he's played well enough on the hard courts to to make a final here of an ATP 250. And actually, that's some some history uh, as a Chinese player getting all the way there. I don't think anybody has done that in America in a very long time. And I got to be honest, I don't know that that much, as much as I'd like to know about him, but uh, he was the number one junior in the world after winning the 2017 junior us open for yeah so clearly someone who i mean although that was now what six six years ago i guess but clearly someone to keep an eye on moving forward and uh it's great i mean this is the thing about tennis there's always these new names there's always new players there's always someone that you're going to be at a tournament and be like oh i saw them first or i saw them when they had this mm-hmm. big breakthrough and and how many for canadian tennis fans in both toronto and montreal have been able to say that at the national bank open over the years it's uh it's always exciting when you see that happen. It's one of the, the the coolest parts about the sport is it's not stagnant. It's always moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And for Dennis, his next stop is going to be Delray Beach. If we shift over um, this week, actually, I'll just mention in Montpellier, Yannick Sinner getting the seventh title of his career, winning the Open Suit de France, beating Maxime Cressy in the finals. He's back inside the top 15. I just wanted to mention quickly about Cressy, who had a really good tournament. Stumbled upon an article of him 
describing how he believes he can be world number one, which is a rare thing for a player like that to say. And I was very fascinated by it, that he has that much belief. And then the question popped in my mind, like Djokovic used to speak this way and people thought it was very arrogant. And I think this is a positive, honestly, that he has this much self-belief, the unorthodox serve and volley game that he's bringing back, that he believes he can get to the top of the sport. You don't get to the top of the sport unless you believe that you can do it. And I'm sure there's many people out there that say it or believe it, and it doesn't happen to, of course. But I've got no problem with that. And and I think of some of the best athletes ever. They've got that, not arrogance, but but cockiness or supreme confidence. And you've got to have that to some degree. Otherwise, how are you going to get there or how are you going to stay there when you, when you get there? And uh, look, even when I'm playing hockey in my 40-plus men's league, I still say to the guys, hey, I haven't even started playing my best hockey yet. You know what I mean? And I... And I honestly believe that, even though yeah. I guess if I sat down and did the the math and looked at my you know declining physique, I'd say, well, probably not likely. But but I say it, and I believe it when I say it, and that gives me a little extra boost when I go out there. So I I think you need to have that. I don't know about you playing playing tennis if you still feel like you're still getting better, that your best maybe in some ways you know maybe not as quick as used to be, but mentally speaking, and how you can use that to still become better. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I don't think I would enjoy sort of working and training on the sport if I didn't believe I could get better. Um, and that's something I think part of why the big three have kept their reign over this kept their reign over the sport for so long. They kept improving. You know, they didn't just win those slams and and stagnate. And that wasn't if if they did someone else would take the mantle. You have to keep improving at all times in the sport. Cressy is incredibly confident in his ability. Do I think he'll be world number one in the future? Probably not, uh, but he's up to number 40. And I do love his game style, actually, the serve and volley style. If we get to Rotterdam this week, this is a big tournament for Felix Ojealiasim, and it's one he's going to remember, of course, for the rest of his life. His first ever title uh, came here last year when he defeated Stefano Tsitsipas in the final at the ABN AMRO Open. It, it's wild to think that was number one when you think of how much he's accomplished since. That was so special, too. And afterwards, when he was on his phone, I think, like FaceTiming or or talking with, I think it was his dad maybe at the time and how emotional it was. It just it really hit me when I was watching it. And I've had a lot of times when I was younger speaking to my dad after a, a big game or something like that. And uh, he's back to defend. He did not have an easy route uh, to get that title last year. He had to take out Andy Murray, Cam Norrie, Rublev, and Pass in the final. He might see Pass again this year if the two make it all the way there once again. But he's also got like Medvedev potentially in the quarters, Rublev once again in his half, um, a tough field once again this year at this event. It's a, a very loaded draw. And, you, you know, part of part of Medvedev being a possible quarterfinal. Uh, I mean, if you flip back to a year ago, I think at this time, Daniil Medvedev was world number one. Uh, so if he had been playing, if he had opted to play Rotterdam at this time. I think last year he would have the number one seed. Now it's Felix um, up to number three, I believe, is the seed. And this player, Rublev, has the number two seed. Uh, but this is a very difficult draw. Uh, I wonder how Felix is approaching it mentally because, uh, you know, he might have to go through Sonigo, Goffin, Medvedev. Her catch is lingering. Rublev is wrangling. Uh, sorry. Um, lingering? Sorry. Lingering, I should lingering. say. And Tsitsipas potentially in the final. I mean, that is a very, very tough road. That is he applying pressure as defending champion, feeling he has to back it up? Or is he really just focused on, like, let's have a quality tournament of tennis? Because it's a new feeling for him as, a, as an ATP player to be a defending champion. He's never had to go in as a defending champion before. So 
uh, more expectation, those memories from a year ago, how do you handle that? Does that, you know, push you forward positively, give you that confidence? Or does it make you wonder, hey, am I playing as well as I did a year ago? Or, or maybe I'm not quite at that level right at the moment. So that'll be interesting to see. But no matter what happens, he's going to have a few title defenses this year. So maybe just like making finals when he was 0-8 to start his professional career, if he, you know, stumbles a little bit now, he's going to have three more opportunities this year to be the defending champ and, and maybe handle that pressure with a little bit more ease if it doesn't happen uh, this week in Rotterdam. Yeah, exactly. And with Indian Wells, Miami open around the corner to uh, prime prime chance for him to make runs there, which he did not do last year. As we wrap, I will also mention Carlos Alcaraz is making his return playing for the first time in 2023 um, this upcoming week. I believe in Argentina. So he'll be back in action uh, for the first time. Uh, our former world number one, he doesn't have that spot now, but he'll be the number one seed at the Argentina open in Buenos Aires. Nice to have him back on the tour guys. We will be back next week. Uh, thanks for listening to match point Canada. We will talk to you next time.